Yes. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> what kind of a start is that? Well, I thought that, that it was a way of conveying yes. that this is the episode that people have been waiting for. She'd have had the full Frank Nelson. Yes! What they've been on ten hooks, I have. Waiting for the antics of uh, Neville Suckling. Well, exactly. I mean, we have been trailing this episode since, I think, around about... What moment was it we went in the summer break? It was at the beginning of July? And we have promised the good listeners of the sitcom club that we were going to visit Neville's Rock Factory. And now, finally, here we are. Myself, Mooncat & Co., joined by Ocho. Hello. And Morgan Strovia. Hello. And later on, we'll also be hearing from Dr. Christian Troy as well. So we've got the uh, the foursome back in force. And all of us have been watching what I was confidently predicting some years ago was going to be the greatest sitcom of all time. What year was that? Well, okay, no, shall I tell the story? I'll let, let, me, let me explain where I'm coming from with this. I'm a big fan of broad comedy. I've spoken about it on the podcast before. I mean, Hell's Teeth, we sat through Not On Your Nelly. Sick. So, also, I'm a big fan of Are You Being Served? And reading up about Are You Being Served, because there's a couple of very good books out there on the subject, I'd obviously read up on shows related to it, shows in which the cast had also appeared. So, I was reading up on Wyatt's Watchdogs with Trevor Bannister, and My Husband and I with. I was going to say four to heart with Molly Sugden, and I was also just I was I was so close to calling it "You Must Be the Husband," which is again a completely different show with Tim Brooke Taylor and Dan yes. Keane. So I'm all over the shop yeah, tonight. I could, anyway. have, I could have said my husband and I. It could have gone to a John Inman. It could have as well. <laughs> well, hang now, hang on. Let let's hold fire. We'll get there. So I've been up about all these different series, and I'd seen some of them on Carlton Select. Well, hey, the much-missed cable station of yesteryear. And there was one show that I just could not track down, and it was Odd Man Out. And everything that I ever read about this was suggesting that it was Mr Humphreys turned up a couple of notches. Now, being a fan of broad comedy, in my mind I'm sort of picturing that every other line is going to be an innuendo, John Inman will be repeatedly looking straight down the lens... And sort of making a face as if to say, well, it's a bit near, isn't it, eh? 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 Couldn't get away with this on the other side, pre-Watershed, but we're okay here, 9pm, all this kind of stuff. And in some ways I actually envisaged that it would be like some of the physical broad comedy that I've seen from Germany, for example. Where you've got like sound effects and things like that in place as well. If you switch on a channel like uh, Sony SAB. For example, if you have a look at some of the sitcoms that come from India, they're like that. We've spoken about that before, about sound effects in place of audience laughter. I have example. to get you to watch some episodes of El Chavo. I know, yes, I know this is... This ding! Is... When people get hit on the head. Which, of course, is something they kind of lifted from Laurel and Hardy. I wasn't quite expecting sound effects per se, but I was thinking it was, it was pretty much going to be that sort of order. It was, it was going to be like a, a Brian Ricks farce it was all going to be quite hyper and so like I say I didn't see this series for, for years and years and years it's only just within the last few months been released on network DVD but a few years back some kind soul uploaded to YouTube some recordings that they'd taken from UK Gold back in the day and I finally got to see it. Now, there was a bit of a delay because when I went back to university after Christmas, I left my power cable behind 
at home, and I didn't realise this at the time, and I was watching the laptop, and when the episode of Odd Man Out popped up on YouTube, it was just a few seconds after the opening titles that the battery ran out, and I was left with no PC for the next four days, which I... Are you sure that was a good thing, or not? Well, I take that to mean that my laptop has better taste in sitcoms than I do. But finally, I got to see the episodes, and, well, for reasons that we'll explain, personally, it was probably the most disappointing sitcom that I've seen. Possibly, but it's probably, probably not its fault, but it's probably because I'd given it such a build-up in my head that it just wasn't how I'd envisaged it, and, yeah, I found it hugely disappointing. And I still, right now, after that was about about six years ago I saw that and I still haven't really put my finger on what's wrong with it and why it isn't living up to my expectations or living down to my expectations as you probably could more correctly say but in the course of the next hour we'll discuss it and sort of work out here and there but maybe I'm being unfair Ocho how did you enjoy Odd Man Out? <laughs> Actually I'm just re-watching it right now because I've brought up my notes because I took notes while I was watching this but it was quite a long time ago and I'm looking at some of my notes and I'm thinking, I don't remember what that was. The one thing being uh, episode two, he's going for his underpants. What the hell? <laughs> so I just need to find out what that was referring right. to. Right. You, okay, now you look into Neville's underpants. Boggins Trovia, what <laughs> did you think of uh, Odd Man Out? Well, I could say that it was innuendo laden. So certainly there would be loads of lines about uh, pants. And the inevitable line, which we'll come on to later, about the catchphrase that Neville uses. Yes, now there are a couple of catchphrases which are used in the show. One of them being, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? But that's not the one that you've got in mind. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll No, touch no, not at all. If you had been a regular viewer of it, rather than watching it specifically for this recording in mind, would you have come back for episode two or three or four? Um, I would have at least given it a chance for a couple of episodes, but after maybe um, two or three, you would think, well, it's sort of the same premise each week, and almost the same, like we're talking about broad humour, the same sort of jokes over and over again. You didn't really see the actual comedy move on. It was almost like a series of, individual ideas put into one show. Yeah, and some of the episodes, such as, for example, Sink or Swim, it really doesn't belong, it doesn't have anything to do with the premise, per se. It doesn't really have anything to do with the the Rock Factory. But with uh, Sink or Swim, the whole episode, you were saying that the premise doesn't belong to the actual sitcom itself, but it's also the way that the episode is done. Now, you can say that in one part, in that episode, there's supposed to be a channel swim by the staff and it eventually ends up with Neville taking on this channel swim with the staff looking on. But it's quite jarring because they've got scenes supposedly on the beach and then it changes to the actual sea. So it jumps between studio and outside filming. And nothing really matches. Now, supposedly, the weather at the beach is sunny in the studio. But when it cuts to the outside filming, it's cloudy. (laughs) When my notes for episode three, I've got a stuff just happens plot. Whose idea was it for the channel swim? It was Neville's. 
because apparently it but was Neville going can't to... swim. We'll go on a channel swim. I can't swim. I haven't bothered to check if anybody else can swim, but let's just do it. Balls to it, yeah. Exactly. It was the Hilda Baker approach. Well, before I come to yourself, Ocho, for your elucidation on, on how much you enthusiastically enjoyed Odd Man Out, let me just explain a little bit about who we're talking about, what the plot is, and so on. So, 1977 is the year. John Inman, best known at the time and now as Mr. Humphreys in Are You Being Served? He moves, leaves Grace Brothers, and moves to ITV. And there he is playing the role of Neville Sutcliffe, who inherits a rock factory. And he's up in Blackpool, he's running a chip shop, he inherits this rock factory, goes down to Little Hampton. Yeah, that's that's not a bad bit of innuendo there. It's not bad, it's not bad. Relatively um, subtle. His sister is played by Josephine Chusen, who by this point would be best known for some of the bits and pieces that she'd done with Ronnie Barker, for example, like Lord Rustless Entertains and so on. Later on, she would be a regular a player in Shelley, and of course, uh, then later on, of course, she was in Keeping Up With Appearances, um, <laughs> which she cannot wait to discuss in the forthcoming Potter episode. Potter done wrong. Peter Butterworth is the foreman in charge of the factory, and we've got a few other players in there who you'd recognise from bits and pieces like Avril Angers, and Vivian Johnson plays Marilyn. She was also a regular in I Being Sept. That's your basic premise. The writer of this is Vince Powell, who was writer of all manner of things, many of them in conjunction with his writing partner, Harry Driver. So he'd written things like Nevermind Quality, Fuel of Width, Love Thy Neighbour, and the year before this, he wrote the series which I cannot wait to review, and it's only one month away now from being released on DVD, The Whackers, the ITV version of Bread, nine years before there was Bread. Also worth mentioning, uh, they wrote some Coronation Streets in the early 60s. Uh, yes, indeed, that's right. You pointed that out to me uh, the, the other day. And probably, actually, the show that Harry Driver and Vince Powell were most known for around about this time was actually a few years earlier, but it's still fondly remembered, and we'll certainly have to review it at some point, is George and the Dragon, with Sid James and Peggy Mount. But anyway, odd man out, so John Edmonds coming over to ITV, he's there exclusively, so at this time, not in public, but... BBC had actually decided that they were not going to make any more episodes of Are You Being Served until such time as John Inman could come back. So if Odd Man Out had been a success, it's quite possible that there wouldn't have been... I think there have been four series of Are You Being Served by this point, and in the end there were ten series of it, so it's possible that it could have come to an abrupt halt if things had worked out on the other side. The show was produced by Gerald Thomas, who is best known as the director of the Carry On films. Ocho, uh, now that I've set up the bits and pieces there, I was enjoying your reactions to the show which you were watching on a nightly basis when you were taking <laughs> taking your notes. <laughs> but what were your thoughts then? Before I get into the, the reasons why I was disappointed, what were your thoughts on Odd Man Out? doesn't work. Now, you say that. Because it doesn't. That's, that's why that's I say correct. it. That's correct, yes. It's stuck between suggestiveness and blatantness yeah i was i was gonna say that it's got all the component parts there obviously you've got john inman you've got josephine chusen you've got peter butterworth you've got vince powell gerald thomas and basically you'd think yeah you've got strong writing you've got strong producing you've got a strong cast but 
basically nothing actually gels. It's like where you take something like, are you being served? That happened organically. But this is like, let's put everyone together. This will be good and this will work. And it doesn't at all. Yeah, I was reading um book on the Marx Brothers last week and they're talking about the Marx Brothers film Room Service and said there is this completely false idea that if you get a good script with good actors and a good director you'll have a good product good is not measurable like that and that was the problem with room service but with this i don't think the scripts are that great inman does not appear to be comfortable with what's going on and you do have this they're not even single entendres they're pas de entendres oh a titty bottle what that's not a joke I mean, it's also lines like cockfosters, and it's just putting it straight in the face, saying, ha-ha, there's another gag about boobs. There's another gag about his An sexuality. Actual, actual touching of boobs, which you don't normally get yeah. on. <laughs> exactly. It's almost like they're trying to say, we're at nine o'clock, we can push it as far as we like. We want to be as smutty as For we God's like. sake, somebody invent alternative comedy so we can make the show we wanted to make. <laughs> They're like jumping but... either side of the line. And then you get, like in the swimming episode, you just get him shouting, there's a fish nibbling at me bum. It's almost some sort of confessions off, if you get what I mean. It's taking that sort of route to say, oh, well, it's been out in the cinema and all like that. So TV audiences would be used to that. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, about the cinema. It almost wants to be the confessions. Well, this this is exactly the problem that the aforementioned carry-on films were having at exactly this time, is that they were trying to work out how to react to the confessions films. And, of course, the confessions films, there were, there were many competitors to them as well. So suddenly, uh, British cinema is swamped with this new style which is going much much further than traditional innuendo and then you end up with a strange sort of hybrid in something like Carrie and Emmanuel which is sort of trying to be everything to all people uh, and ends up sort but, of satisfying but I was going to say that even in uh, Vince Powell's next vehicle Mind Your Language the sort of innuendo laden smuttiness with his earlier work in Love by Neighbour and you've got these two things butting together and it doesn't come off. You see that with sitcoms around this time. Well, let me, let me say one thing about Vince Powell before I come on to the elephant in the room, which I think we've alluded to previously in, in some of our discussions about Odd Man Out. But with regards to Vince Powell, I think that he is frequently unfairly criticised for his work on Love Thy Neighbour. Because I think looking back at Love Thy Neighbour now, it's often referred to as a racist show and I wouldn't say that it's racist let's get into context that these were sensibilities of that time well the the thing is that the the language in those shows and you could say the same about some of the language in Odd Man Out as well the language in the shows obviously you wouldn't get that in 2013 okay that's that's taken as read but I think the bit that a lot of people overlook with shows like that is that, okay, yes, they may be uh, crude and simplistic and they have language which would be out of place today, but the point is that those shows, at the conclusion of them, for example, take Love Thy Neighbour, you have your two characters, perhaps 
still ill at ease with one another, but they're still sitting there in the pub sharing a drink and so on and having a laugh about whatever's happened in the previous 25 minutes. Now, somebody who was actually racist would not have approved of a show like Love Thy Neighbour. They would have thought the complete opposite of it. They would have thought, oh, this is an attempt by television to you know, influence public opinion and so on. Maybe it was. I don't think there's any question that a show like Love Thy Neighbour, you could honestly say that that was racist and I don't think that you would say that the other shows of Vince Powell's were sexist or homophobic. But you can say that about the similar sort of thing um, with Alf Garnett. Like Warren Mitchell has spoken himself about where people have said we like Alf having a go at black people and all like that. Warren Mitchell's response of course was we're going at dickheads like you. The area that I was going to there is that I don't think that charges of the isms are fair towards Vince Powell, but what I think is fair is that if you follow his writing all the way up into something like, say, Bottle Boys in the mid-1980s, you do start to see a pattern of characters by numbers. And you've got that in Oddman Out, as you've said, you've got that in Mind Your Language, where you've got basically your checklist of different nationalities and ethnicities. And then in Bottle Boys, for example, you've really then got sort of cardboard cutout characters. You've got the, the drunken Scotsman, and you've got the idiot who then Robin Asquith can play off, and you have a bossy woman who comes in and bees a butt of the jokes and so on. It's almost like this is a sitcom by checklist and here's all the elements and in something like Odd Man Out if you just look at the individual characters who are in the factory yeah you can pretty much see it's it's lazy I think that's a fair criticism I think it's I think it's a lazy One thing is, form of characterization. though as well talking about sexism racism unfortunately we've got this idea of them as absolutes it's racist or it's not racist and racism in most people's mind means purely malicious hatred of other races actions against other races and we don't really have a word for not caring enough or being clumsy or being well-meaning but doing the wrong thing we we don't have a spectrum of expression for what something so so you can you can sort of say look love thy neighbor is not good at what it does what it does say is simplistic and the way it says it is clumsy but we don't have that language in current discourse to sort of say it's this other thing and that's its problem i was alluding there to what i called the elephant in the room with odd man out so let's address that just now we'll come on to individual characters in a second but when it comes to johnnyman's character first of all mr humphreys in are you being served and i know i know it's a nuisance to constantly go back to that but it is the show with which John Inman was most identified at this time. So you can't help but draw comparisons, and let's be perfectly honest about it, the character of Neville is not a million miles away from Mr. Humphreys. Uh, it's a very similar role. And in some ways that's it's quite unfair. John Inman was a very talented performer, and he had some breadth, and, and he could do characters that were not in the least bit like Mr. Humphreys. If you look at some of the bits and pieces that he's done, for example, he did a character on uh, the Good Old Days music hall show, which I think the tape of that still exists. It's worth trying trying to track that down. But yeah, Neville is like Mr. Humphreys, only a key element is different. Mr. Humphreys, his sexuality is never directly addressed in Are You Being Served? The only thing that the writers 
David Croft and Jeremy Lloyd would ever openly admit to is that he's a mummy's boy, which he is. He is mollycoddled and he's he's quite effeminate, but as far as his sexuality is concerned, there's not really an area... It's not, not so much there's not an area for discussion, but there's always a, a bit of a mystique about it. But it's a thing really with... As you talk about that, with Neville's character, of course, he's got... That you never see his friend, Bobby. At some point, you would say, oh, Bobby's a man because, you know, uh, through his sexuality again. But then, it's almost like, oh, Bobby's a woman. And then at one point, you say, oh, Bobby dressed as a woman, as a child. And you think, what's going on? Is it man? Woman? Whatever's going on. Well, you've got this strange element in Odd Man Out where... As you say, with his conversations in relation to his friend Bobby, who's then taken over the chip shop in Blackpool, it is slightly more. I don't know. That's as far as it goes. Slightly more overt. There is no. There is no. This is not Julian Clary. There is nothing which is that overt and and removes all trace of innuendo. But nevertheless, it's still going further than audiences had come to expect with Mr. Humphreys, and because. Neville Sutcliffe is not a million miles away from Mr. Humphreys, then you can understand if there is a reaction, and I think some some of this is received wisdom to be honest, but you can understand if there's a reaction amongst some viewers that this is perhaps a little bit further than they're entirely comfortable with at the time, because they recognise this person, they recognise his character, but he's ever so slightly different from the way that he normally is. So... Well, it- it's a case where where Mr. Humphreys was camp, but this is pushing it almost, you know, to say it won't say that Neville is gay, but it's going as far as can be without actually saying it. Yes. And at this stage, you're only a few years removed from, for example, Daniel LaRue in his television shows appearing out of drag at the conclusion of the show as he said later on to to almost sort of distance himself from the character that he's just been playing as if to say okay that, that's the character that I'm playing but that doesn't really reflect myself and my, my own personality this is now this is me and also for example Larry Grayson who at this time was just about to take over Generation Game uh, and had been on ITV for about regularly for about five years at this point with his own series he once said in a newspaper interview viewers know that I'm not really gay, they know I'm just pretending so you've still got, to an extent you've still got that sort of climate where homosexuality is something which is you'd st- you even by this point in 77 you still say well, it's only it's, been it's, legal for 10 years well exactly it's something which is now being discussed but it's not yet to the point where you would see it depicted on television and not think twice about it you said there Ocho, that homosexuality had only been legal for 10 years at this point believe it or not it was still three years away from being decriminalized in scotland because the law was only changed in England and Wales in 67, and it wasn't changed in Scotland until 1980. So, I mean, people might think, from the vantage point of 2013, people might listen to this and think, what on earth has this got to do with Mr Humphreys faffing about in the rock factory in Littlehampton? The point is that it's all relevant because you have to see the shows 
no matter what series we're talking about in any given week, you have to see the shows via the prism of that particular period of time. And it's so easy now to just forget about how things were in any given year and think about the social trends or the general opinion of the, the majority of the populace. But you've got to bear things like that in mind when you're assessing whether a show takes off with the viewing public and whether it becomes a hit or not. I mean, okay, we're... Though we're, we're, we're already three years after the first appearance of Lukewarm in Porridge, who must have been a massive leap at the time, despite the fact that he still gets the jokes. He's not a one-dimensional, you know, he, he will occasionally have lines that move the plot forward. Let me also just say as well, I think that all of those aspects, all of those arguments, they are all relevant and they would have all played some part in the lack of success of Odd Man Out because it's got to establish a rapport with its audience. I've got to be absolutely honest about it as well and say that as shows go it just it wasn't that funny. It just really wasn't that good. And I think that the old saying about, you know, something being offensive when it isn't funny, but when you find it funny, then you can make excuses for it. I think that that, that pretty much holds up in this case. Though Odd Man Out's problems are not just Neville's sexuality. Yeah, it's there's, just... there's, there's lots going on there. Is It's a whole pile of problems which are going on. You could pick any number of things which are in the series, but they just compound one on top of each other. They come about so thick and fast that you don't get time to breathe. Moonke, you're going to have to remind me about what happens in episode two. I've definitely got some notes here that indicate a massive plot <laughs> failure. Let's have a look at the episodes. Cause there, are only, there are only um, seven of them. So the first episode, Neville's still at the fish and chip shop, finds out that he's inherited the factory. Off he goes down south. There he discovers Joseph and Chosen, his uh, half-sister, I believe, and they are the joint owners of the factory. He goes around and meets all the people in the factory, so on and so on. And yeah, so largely episode one is establishing the plot and the premise and so on. Now, Episode 2, they realise that they have a cash flow problem. He goes straight for his underpants. I've got something written on my underpants. Yes. Yeah, Len, do you want to see? (laughs) Just had a look there. He he basically flashes on the underpants. Yeah, he's like got no filter on his behaviour. He grabs somebody's boobs in episode (laughs) 1. No, no, oh, hang on a second. I guess he just okay. My memory is failing me here, but I don't think that Neville actually just grabs a woman's boobs. He, he it must have. Oh been no, he oh, sorry, he tickles them, but he actually there's the actual contact there, which I don't think you would normally get from. You certainly probably wouldn't get it from an ostensibly straight character. Yeah, I mean, I I I was guilty of of, of accusing. <laughs> Accusing Jack Douglas of simply staring at Stu Nichols' chest and going, Phew! anyway, back to the plot. Uh, so, yes, now there is some of that going on, but yeah, the idea was that they haven't got enough money, so he's going to get, well, he's going to get some money, he goes to the bank, that doesn't work, and then they come back, and then. Now, here, now, now, you see, this is the first episode where we've got a little bit of ambiguity about Neville because suddenly we've got the prospect of Neville marrying into money. No, no, ambiguity's a nice word for it. <laughs> Just changing the fundamentals of his personality as the plot <laughs> dictates, I think, is the correct yeah. term. 
I, I, yeah, I would, I would agree. I would agree with that. But it's almost a, uh, it's sort of that Dorothy, which is Josephine Jusen's character, is manipulating to say, oh, well, I won't do it. Oh, but you will, without even saying to, do you want to do this? This is for the good of the uh, rock factory. It's almost like she's a bit, well, not a control freak, but she'll do anything to save the business. Yeah, especially when it comes to... to <laughs> no, she'll just do anything that she will get a joke out of it. I think I'm right in saying that the, the conclusion of the episode... What conclusion? That, well, the, this is the thing, because they don't actually... They don't conclude by getting any money, but everything's fine, apparently. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's just like... Somebody just comes in and goes, Wah! and chases Josephine Jusen around. And that's the end. And and in episode three, there's nothing. We, well, I think we need to clarify that the ends with the prospect of Josephine choosing marrying into money herself. It does not end with somebody coming in and just chasing. Yeah, it's a character who has at least been mentioned before. It's, it's, it's not just like Wilfred Bramble from the Three Two Christmas Special. It's run all the way from Kirkstall. Do we do we need to explain that? Have we have we explained that before on the show? Oh, um, let's let them find out themselves. <laughs> well, just just Google YTV three two one Christmas seven nine. You'll have fun. <laughs> Sorry, Bog. Bog, what you were going to say? Well, I was I was going to say at the end of episode two, like we were talking about, but the situation where um, Neville's been pushed into marrying one of the character's daughters, Mister Pemberton's daughter. That obviously Mister Pemberton can give money to a rock factory to keep it going, it's reversed round so that Dorothy will marry Mr Pemberton. So, of course, he comes in, it's the opposite way round. She's running about with him chasing Ella Bryan, Rick's farce, etc. This is Britain in 1977. I've never I've never met you before in my life, but yes, I'll marry you, and also I'll give you, give you lots of money as well. Let's get on with it. His discomfort isn't earned. He just starts freaking out immediately. I thought, ah, I, I obviously, I can see what's going to happen. This is, I happens to think a few times in the series. Like, ah, yes, because this has been structured a certain way, I can tell what's going to happen. Oh, no, they didn't even bother with that. <laughs> but, so it's like, mean, obviously it's... she's going to come on and she's going to be a dragon. She's going to be a horrible person. No, she's a perfectly ordinary human female. She's not a type. She's Well, she's a little bit excitable and a little bit forward. But he is freaking out like she's just like jumped on him and started tearing his ears off. I do like his silly cowboy outfit. That's a good gag. And you remember the good gags in this. I was going to say that it's put apart by the ambiguity, isn't he? It's like, oh, well, there's a woman uh, going to marry me. I don't know what to do because uh, uh, he's not had relations with women no, no, well, this is the thing because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because we've already spoken about sink or swim, and, and and that was bloody awful to be honest. But if we we go on to episode four, then we've got a further compromising of Neville's character in what I actually thought was the best episode by some <laughs> length. I thought it was the best episode of series one. Oh, I was saying series one like like there was twelve of them, but the best episode the best of the episode one series that there was of Odd Men Out. Well, um, well, well. Well, you may disagree, but no, I thought the best episode of Series 1 was... I said it again, Series 1. There were not more than one series of Odd Man Out. 
God's sake. As much as I would have liked. But I thought, yeah, the better episode was Shall We Dance, episode 4. Um, where Dorothy and Neville have an invite to some business dinner, whatever the hell it is. It's a chamber of commerce. Well, no, is this, no, no, again, no, this, is, this is the thing. Because first of all, one trait that we've spoken about quite a bit in previous shows is the direction that an episode goes when a character doesn't say the obvious thing to say and, and, and sometimes lies or tries to cover up when there's not really any need to. Now, it's not quite the same in this instance, but the thing that was puzzling me about this is Dorothy and Neville got these invites to go to this dance and they're flapping about because they're saying, oh, I don't have anybody to go with. Now, well, why don't they just why don't they just go together? Yeah. That, 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 yeah, that's exactly. the thing that I couldn't I couldn't figure out for life. Of me is why well they both get invites. They need somebody of the opposite sex to, to go with. That's what they're both looking for. So go together. That's fine. There you are. Problem solved. But then you wouldn't get half an hour of that. So instead, we've got Neville flapping about and getting in touch with a dating agency. And again. It's, it's almost like there's now less ambiguity and it's more like Neville for the sake of this particular episode is just considered straight <laughs> because not only is he looking for a female partner now you could say that that's so that he can fit in with the convention of the event itself you could, you could argue that but when the lady then the French lady comes to the door later on at the end of the episode he's smitten with her oh I've never seen anybody as beautiful in my life and so on which puts some polar opposite to where it was two episodes ago when the, the idea of relations with a human of the opposite gender grouping was first raised. But of course in episode 4 you've got the cameo also of Rita Webb. Now of course when Rita Webb comes in as a supposedly Neville's date because she's gone with the same dating agency, she almost steals the show. People are almost relieved to see her, to say, there's a quality performer coming on now and she's going to make the episode better. They're almost relieved to see her. Now, that shouldn't be the case, that someone should come into your sitcom and basically almost swamp the main star. You know that things are going wrong if that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's... Don't get me wrong, there, there are good pieces, there are good set pieces in Odd Man Out. There are some individual little good scenes, and that's clearly one of them, when Jonathan and Rita Webb are playing opposite each other in the cafe. And that leads to also a good conclusion to the episode as well. But Ocho, would you agree with my assessment that this was, by some considerable measure, the best episode of the series? It just about holds together. Nobody goes completely insane. Right, now, okay... Now here I'm gonna I'm gonna float something here. Like I say, I really have struggled with what it is that Siler missing or is in play with Odd Man Out that means that it, it's it's been such a disappointment to me because like we we spoken about before, the one I always bring up is is not in your Nelly. Yeah, that's very very broad, and episodes have no point or conclusion or anything and nothing at all matters and any action by any individual has no discernible consequences of any kind and yet I still enjoy it much much more than enjoy Odd Man Out and one reason I think is the pace of the show and this episode has an example of the pedestrian pace you've got this sequence towards the end where Dorothy's partner for the evening arrives and she sees him and there's this like it almost sounds like it's coming off 
of a vinyl record. It sounds so dated. Uh, this little sort of classical piece plays, and and they look at each other and ah, oh, everything's lovely. And then repeated with Neville, his date arrives and so on. And of course, there's a big sorry spoiler alert, ladies and gentlemen, that the big payoff is that the two individual dates then clap eyes on each other and fall for each other and then piss off. But the point is that that sequence takes so long to play out and the reactions and even just waiting for the music to come in and come out and so on everything just takes so long and in some episodes where you've got just general dialogue being delivered you do actually have some quite, I mean, I'm not talking milliseconds, but it's long enough that you notice that there are some, you know, quite considerable gaps where you'd think that people would be reacting quicker. I mean, it's almost, I mean, I know this wasn't the case because it would have been taped in front of a live audience, but it has the feel of a show which has been tightly rehearsed, leaving the appropriate one or two seconds for audience reaction, and then sticking with that regardless of whether the audience reaction matched the expectation. I mean, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm genuinely, I'm not being unfair there, I'm not being facetious. It really does feel as if it's a very, very slow pace. The more I think about this, Ocho, I don't know what you you think of this would be feasible or not, but, I mean, everybody... Well, running it through some digital thing and just having very extremely fast <laughs> just to get the pace up to the, something funny might happen in a couple of seconds instead of four seconds. <laughs> Well, no, but what I was going to say there was that um, this is not... You're not talking about a group of Amdram players. Every one of the performers in this show could be trusted with a live audience. They've all done a great deal of television work and theatre work, and I do wonder if perhaps... I'm not suggesting that they would, they would actually go all the way to having it semi ad libbed or anything like that, but I think that if they'd just been given a little bit more space to work with, I think if they'd been given a bit more authority and if John Emman was allowed to occasionally ad lib, for example, and maybe do the odd bit to camera or to the audience or whatever it would have been, I mean, I'm not suggesting turning it all the way into something like Mrs. Brown's Boys, but I think it would have benefited from just sort of loosening the straitjacket a little bit. When you're and, saying and... about the pace, I think it's an example of that lack of care. Basically, they've given it the minimum amount of plot to carry half an hour and the minimum number of jokes to carry the half hour. Now, you can change the balance on one or the other. You can have a thin plot that's stuffed full of gags or you can have a reasonably dense plot that's peppered with gags so that the pace wouldn't be too slow if there was a new development and that development had been written in. We could see it coming. There were good and sufficient reasons for things to happen. But generally what you get... It's a bit like somebody um, somebody saying about modern sketch shows. That tendency for them to start with the joke. Okay, here's the concept and let's watch it play out. And it's not going to develop. I can't think of any modern sketch shows because I've pretty much wiped them off in my brain. Of course, that, that's, that's... To make not, room for more Beach Boys lyrics, but... Not limited to just modern day sketch shows. Alfred Marx. Oh, 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 that hurt. Oh, oh, that was, oh, never do that again. So I think that's part of your problem with the pace. Again, it's a bit like the innuendo. It it doesn't commit to one or the other. Is it dense? Is it leisurely? Uh, kind of. Is it filth? Or is there some plausible deniability? Uh, whatever we feel like at the time. 
the series doesn't really know what it wants to be, like you're saying. You know, and people don't. Episode five. When it comes to stuff just happening, oh, a baby! Oh, <laughs> I help myself no, to no. But Boggs, I, I I spared you the last three episodes of the series. I thought that that the episodes one to four was going to be more than enough to take in, but I would say that episode five and six, they have no point. No, episode as seven far... is the worst, though. Yeah, no, yes, it certainly is. But we'll come on to that. But episode five and six have no point in as much as they have nothing whatsoever to do with the premise that Neville is running a rock factory. As a matter of which fact, which is fine. Uh, we were talking about. Man About the House, and to a lesser extent in Loving Memory, I don't know if that edition's gone out yet, but we have recorded a review of In Loving Memory. We're talking about if it's strong enough, if your characters are strong enough on the page and in the performance, after a while, the premise becomes secondary. And with Man About the House, I imagine a lot of people turned on Man About the House not because they cared about how are they going to deal with the fact that this bloke's flat sharing with two birds they wanted to see what robin was up to what chrissy was up to what joe was up to you could almost say well the sexual element women would tune in to see richard o'sullivan i mean men would tune in to obviously see sally thompson and paula wilcox and that most other people would want to see what Yuffie Joyce and, and Brian Murphy were doing. So you had an element of everything for everyone in Man About When, when you say to find out what Yuffie Joyce and Brian Murphy were doing, you're not suggesting that the uh, Mildred had overcome George's hesitancy and got him uh, no. locked in the bedroom with <laughs> bare handcuffs. That's, that's the X-rated version to later it is. So, unless there's something about your premise that is so elephant in the roomish that it would be weird if it wasn't mentioned i think you can cut a show a break for just taking some time off admittedly you couldn't have like an episode of porridge where <laughs> they just, they're they just outside and there's no mention the of why, they're, why they're <laughs> i mean but the thing is they're just looking at the episode list in front of me um i think you could argue that the rock factory itself stops being the central premise at the end of episode two, and you've still got five episodes to go. But looking at the list, then sink and swim, crossing the channel, got nothing to do with anything. Shall we dance? They're going somewhere again. Nothing to do with the rock factory. Episode five. Who's a pretty baby? Baby turns up. The concept has spoofed by Father Ted years later. Baby on doorstep. Imagine how hilarious that would be. Well, actually, it wouldn't be that hilarious, Ted. No, it wouldn't. Episode six. Clunk click. Neville doing his driving test and then episode 7 I'm going to France so uh, those last 5 episodes the fact that there's a rock factory in the background that Wolf occasionally comes in from has got nothing to do with anything actually you saying episode 7 makes me want to actually see that now that episode be careful what you wish for Box. <laughs> I'm, I'm battle hard. I can get that now. DVD I to you this. quicker than you would want <laughs> yeah I was going to say but don't forget that but most sitcoms say, oh, well, let's do an episode where they go abroad, don't they? Funnily enough, Boggs, that's a very interesting segue, because as we speak, Ocho has stepped out of the recording booth, and he has dashed all the way to Hollywood to speak to our very own DCT. So let's get his thoughts right now on Odd Man Out. So we're in Hollywood right now, Mooncat. I've moved away from my special recording chair. 
and I'm here with DCT to get his opinion on Odd Man Out. Hello. Odd Man Out is shoddy. <laughs> it's entertaining, but I'm not really sure where it's meant to be going. I mean, like you get a few little subplots with um, Wilfie um, having a thing for John Inman's uh, half-sister, is it? Half-sister. But the thing is, even the saucy sexiness of the uh, people in the, in the in the rock factory is a is kind of upsetting and uh, it, it worries me slightly. I did feel slightly bad for John Inman having to kind of remind the audience to watch again at the end of each episode. And um, I just feel it shouldn't have deviated so far away from the concept of, of have owning a rock factory and that there was a lot of missed opportunities potentially to just make more out of it. Also, I think, I guess my highlight, and by that I mean low light, would have been probably when Wilfie and John Inman for no apparent reason spend a good a third of the episode uh, playing around with a fake doll baby which is mildly horrific and um, it's not that I wouldn't recommend it to anyone but I wouldn't recommend it to anyone but uh, I'm not really sure where it could have gone I mean the end of the first series implies that they were uh, sold into French servitude following a snafu at the hotel and it's slightly degraded as well with uh, half brother and half sister forced to um, cavort for the benefit of the French so um in summary, no. This is Frank Carson, News at 10. Back to Mooncat. And thank you very much to DCT, who's off on his travels and may well be actually uh, doing some bits and pieces for a future podcast when he's out there with his collaborator on the Whoops Apocalypse episode, Squiddy. Uh, and if you haven't had that episode, it's in the podcast archive. Make sure you download it and hear it. Ocho, you have returned hotfoot from Hollywood. So, your thoughts on episode five? Let's just start picking this one apart. For a start, the rumpy chunks thing. I do so hate funny names for products that wouldn't really exist. It's always been an annoyance of mine. There's um, an episode of Red Dwarf where they talk about a condom called the Black Ribbed Nobbler. What? Yes. You don't, yeah. That wouldn't exist. And we have this thing that he buys a lot of rumpy chunks and... Josephine Tewson questions and he goes, I like rumpy chunks. They turn out to be a dog food. Has he been eating this stuff or can he not read labels? How can he say he likes it without knowing what it is? But then, perversely, we actually get the washing up scene is a good bit of business. It's a proper gag. It's well done. It's an old-fashioned thing. You just have the thing that somebody's washing up. They're handing the plate to somebody else to dry it. They're drying it and then they're putting it on the yet-to-be-washed pile so that the same three plates are getting washed. Now that's an element of just letting them do what they do best. Because all the, the, the players in it, they've all appeared in farces and that's exactly the kind of thing that you think that they would do more of. They would do more set pieces like that. Again, there are some nice little pieces in individual episodes and actually if you took, say a little set piece, one from each episode, you'd actually have a, a nice little half an hour. You wouldn't have any plot, but then you don't have much of a plot anyway in, in the episodes. But Clunk Click, episode six. Again, yeah, there's some faffing about goes on in that, but certainly hasn't got anything to do with the rock factory itself. We discover that Neville's late father was a bit of a, a gore, eh? Is like he the that. guy in the painting? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, it's a guy in the painting, which at the end of the first episode, that it is colour uh, separation overlay of John Inman sort of uh, done up as his uh, father. Winking. But uh, it's chilling. Yeah, exactly. 
It Mate, does actually suffer from television painting syndrome most of the time. We haven't even discussed what John Inman does at the end of each episode yet. Oh, we'll get to that. We will get to that at the end, I think. Here. And we haven't mentioned who wants to. Okay, who wants to be first? First, first to shout out wins the prize, which is Chiba Smarties. Who actually wants to repeat what John Inman's main catchphrase is in the show? How's your rock cop? Hey, <laughs> and I actually used to say that frequently to a friend of mine a few years back. Well, a former friend. Any, well, no, no. Uh, but without giving him any context whatsoever. And even to this day, I don't think I've ever discussed Odd Man Out with him, so he has never, ever understood why I repeatedly said to him, how's your rock cock? He just thought it was some bullshit <laughs> little catchphrase that I'd invented on the spot. Sorry about that, Phil. I really should have uh, explained that to I you. I still want to talk but, uh, about anyway. television painting syndrome. Back in the days of standard definition, a painting in the background on a set didn't actually have to be that good. The cameras would soften it, it would be okay. And of course, any time the camera gets to a certain proximity to any painting in any TV show, good God, that looks like it was painted by somebody's feet. <laughs> the hell is that? It's been dashed off in 10 minutes. <laughs> It is always one of the great joys of all television things. Is the camera going to get anywhere near that painting? Because suddenly, especially if it's like something like upstairs, downstairs, or some grand old thing where it's supposed to be a landseer or <laughs> Gainsborough. <laughs> it's, like, it's something that got rejected from the gallery from Take Heart. Um, oh, yes. Ocho, breaking news. Within the last week or so, uh, I actually did get to see um, for a hard driving the car in Last of Summer Wine. <laughs> and the, yes, it is actually the, something very special, isn't it? The weird CGI version. It's yeah, it's clearly a step up from back projection on CSO, but it's still like they're driving through different universes. This looks normal, but. Also wrong. Are you sure they just didn't get Kenny Everett's Verity Treacle to drive the car instead? Uh, well, that would be, that would have been nice. It would have been unusual as far as the plot of the episode of Last of Summer Wine if Verity Treacle had just suddenly turned up for no apparent reason. But yeah, sure, I wouldn't have minded that. But uh, so yes, yeah, so if you do actually, I mean, it's on gold, genuinely on gold twice a day in the morning and in the afternoon. On weekdays, so yeah, and the era that I think, as as we're recording this, around about two thousand four, the era. Any time you see anybody driving, not just for a herd, but I saw truly Frank Thornton at the wheel the other day, and there it was again, the curious back projection. So yes, yeah, so do tune in and see that. So yeah, any thoughts, Ocho, on current click, or do you just want to move on? <laughs> well, I, n- I never finished my thoughts on the baby stealing episode. But I'd need to I'd need to rewatch it because I've just noticed one of my notes is a character we've never seen before. Why should we care? Well, they didn't steal a baby. Let's let, let, let's clarify that. <laughs> oh, somebody's nothing. left a baby here. Well, presumably it's been completely abandoned. Let's just take it into the office and not even leave a note. Also, I was uh, reading a message board thread the other day where people talking about things you don't see anymore. And one was teenagers writing band names on their clothing. The guy with the super stud T-shirt. He's like, you just done that with masking tape, mate. 
You couldn't you couldn't even go. I mean, they're at the seaside. There must be some booth that says we will print your message on a T-shirt. He can't even afford that. Terrible. But, I don't know but why I mentioned going that. Going back to a carry-on film, right, to sort of relate to Up and Out, carry-on, etc., Gerald Thomas, don't forget in carry-on behind that um, Jack Douglas's character has a T-shirt, Duke of Old. Yeah, but that's proper. He's had that printed somewhere. He's gone to a booth and he's paid his 75p or whatever ridiculously tiny prices they had for things in those days. This guy, this guy can't even be bothered with that. I, I don't know why it's annoying me so much. It's not worth. I probably just. I'm probably going to edit that out. <laughs> but I think it's. I mean, we've we've spoken before about the length of time that it takes mainstream popular sitcoms to not. Now I wouldn't say catch up. I don't think catch up's the right right expression. But to refer to an aspect of popular culture of the day, like for example, the Teddy and June episode where they learn disco dancing is from 1980. Now, disco was still going, still going strong in 1980, but it had passed the peak of its popularity. The peak of its popularity came in 77, 78, with things like Saturday Night Fever and so on. But the occasions when you actually get mention of some element of popular culture at exactly the point where it's at its peak in sitcoms is relatively few and far between. I was just thinking there when, when Ocho was saying that, the chances of that guy, even if it was presumably would have been covered up to some extent, but the chances of that guy having a never mind the bollocks t shirt <laughs> on it would have been ab- so far as the time was concerned, in autumn of seventy seven, absolutely bang on. Spot on. But saying that, there is something which does happen in episode three. You know that you were talking about pop culture references Obviously, when they're um, Marilyn and Cleo have got their bikinis on, um, but Percy, right, when he uh, comes out of the um, changing booth, that never comments that he says, oh, well, oh, it's a man from Atlantis. Now, that that is, of course, that would have been on, on ITV around that time. This is you know? true. This is true. I tell you, actually, it's not popular culture. It's um, I think the... when we're saying popular culture, we really mean youth culture, don't we? Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. The one I always think of is um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood being referred to in a 1987 episode of Terry and Jin. But one such instance of the hot political story of the day being inserted into a sitcom. I saw the other week an episode of Till Death is Part from January of 1974. And there was dialogue in there, presumably written very much the week itself, if not last minute, related to the three-day week. And the Friday week had just begun, I think, just one month earlier, and it was still ongoing at exactly that time. Now, I'm not sure what the recording dates to transmission dates, I'm not sure what the lag was with that show, but it clearly would have been written with a view to that being on there and then at the time. And when Dandy Nichols says, I'm on a Friday week, it gets a huge reaction from the audience huge reaction of just recognition because it's reflecting exactly what was happening at the time. Something which I can't honestly say about Odd Man Out. (laughs) I like the implication that you tried. Uh, We have one final episode of Odd Man Out left, Ooh La La, which I think, Ocho, I think you accurately say is probably the poorest episode of the series. Yeah, but partially just because of the massive, massive plot shift. 
plot shift, plot breakage. That somebody just snaps it in half. Right, okay, Neville, give me that half back. Here's the half now. This is who you are for the rest of this episode. Shall I talk about this? Yeah, right, go so on. Why we have Neville is learning French because of the common market and increased European unity. And as part of this, he's trying to sell their rock in France. So he's going over to meet... Who is he going over to meet? Is he a businessman or was he something connected with local government? Mooncat, help me out. I I, honestly, I can't remember. Um, It would be some trade minister or somebody. Yeah, The plots are somewhat simplistic. You know, Neville's learning French because we're in the EU. We can sell rock to the EU. Let's get in there. We'll go to France. It makes me even more interested to hear it. As I said, I haven't even seen the episode concern. In the face of scepticism from his (laughs) half-sister, he persuades her to go to France with him to meet a businessman about selling their rock in France. As soon as the meeting starts, they have some... They start toasting, you know, Viva la France, and... uh, They'll always be in England. Neville suddenly becomes the worst xenophobe. <laughs> and is now it's just all about putting the French in their place and he hates them. And that's it. It's just like all the sympathy flies out the window. And it's just like, hang on a minute. <laughs> There's no reason for this to happen. You could just have Josephine Tewson be the one behind this and have Neville be a xenophobe from the start. But no, it's just kind of like, Neville, you love the French. Now you hate the French. Whatever will get the gags out. Yeah, so it, it, it's a fitting conclusion to the series. And but this is supposed to be a really high-class hotel as well, yeah? Why do they have a pash dancing as part of dinner? It's so they can have the, the yeah, finale of the Yeah, which is well choreographed. <laughs> this, this, yes. Uh, well choreographed a slapstick as well as being choreographed as dancing. This is a high-tone hotel where they can't afford a waiter, so the manager has to take all the orders. <laughs> and actually, this this has one of my uh, irrational bugbears in it as well. Episodes of sitcoms which have non-standard endings as far as the theme music is concerned. For whatever reason, it just irritates me. If I particularly if I like the theme music of an episode or of a of a show, and I really do like the the theme to Odd Man Out, written by Max Harris, and then realizing that because of the the conclusion to this episode, we're not going to get to hear it. Because in this episode, Neville and Dorothy are going to have a bit of a dance. Uh, so we're not going to get to hear the theme music. Oh, bugger it. And let's face it, this show is not coming back for a second series. So if I'd been there at the time, I would have thought, well, I'm never going to hear that theme music again. Um, <laughs> I wish I, I wish in 1977, I wish I had one of those newfangled video recorders so I could at least have recorded it. So, yeah. Boggs, do you... Yeah, you were, you were going to come in there. After hearing that, after not seeing it, how would... John Inman explained that for a plea bargain at the end of the episode. <laughs> no, no, we've got to no, we've got to explain this because we haven't even we haven't touched on that. So, Box, can you can you elaborate on what John Inman does at the end of every episode? Oh, he basically goes over a plot at the end of each episode, right? And basically, he says, "Oh, thanks for watching. God bless. I hope we'll see you next week." Almost like, please come back. We want you to watch next week. We lost about 2 million viewers. We need viewers next week, please. 
I like that device. I like that device of him just coming on at the end and going, oh, he doesn't necessarily wrap up plots, does he? <laughs> Despite the fact that things tend to end in midair. But I just quite, I don't know. It's, it's a good use of John Inman's screen presence. Yeah, it's a, it's a sheer desperation. It, it, when you look at episode one, right, let's consider that. The end of the episode, Neville pulls a chain, or the liquid rock comes down, everyone does the slapstick thing, falls over, right? And at the end of that sequence, you think, right, okay, the end credits have gone up, and then the, uh, the Thames logo will come on there, right? And then suddenly he comes on again, and you think, well, what's, what's this? You know, what's he come on there again? It's almost like an afterthought. They thought, ah, oh, this isn't good enough. I'll put more John Inman on the screen. I think it works. I like it as a as an as an idea. And if it was attached to a good show, it'd be one of the things people would talk about it that made it so nice. Unfortunately, it's attached to this. What I would say is that um, John Inman is the only player in Are You Being Served? I, f- I think I'm right in saying this. I'm 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 very very happy to be proved wrong if anybody wants to, to tweet in if if they have an example. But thinking through, just rapidly going through every episode of ten series of I being served, I think Mr. Humphreys is the only character who communicates directly with the audience, which he does on a number of occasions. Which just looks straight down the barrel, and it might just be something throwaway, um, or it might be he may actually break the fourth wall entirely uh, and and very very briefly come out of character. But yeah, this seems to be an extension of that, and and honestly, I would have loved to have seen much much more of that in the show itself. I would have liked to have actually just seen John Emmon just given carte blanche to to do that. I would like. I mean, it would be nice if he'd had a slave camera equivalent to say. You know Jack Benny or somebody like that, for example, just trained on him permanently, which he could always sort of look over to. I think that'd be lovely. I would think I think it would be a terrific little device, um, and sort of made it his own his own show rather than just John him and sort of being crowbarred into this plot about a rock factory, which anybody could have been given as a, as a an off the shelf sitcom. By the way, I've just had taken another look at the last episode. At the end, instead of seeing you next week, he says, "Thank you for all your lovely letters." Do you think? Do you think? <laughs> Sorry. Well, but who's written all the letters then? Um, Mrs. Trellis of North Wales. Um, hey! Now, well, let, 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 let's do a, a little positive history. If you haven't seen this show, definitely get hold of this documentary from, I think, 2009. Thereabouts, the story of Are You Being Served? And in that, David Croft describes being invited as a guest onto. John Inman's This Is Your Life because ITV were really getting behind you know, John Inman with, with this show in mind he was on, This Is Your Life, he was on the cover of the TV Times and so on and when Croft and Lloyd came on, Croft whispered to John Inman, how's the rock factory and John Inman replied, don't ask <laughs> so they sort of, they already knew that Odd Man Out wasn't going to continue and Jonathan did come back to I being served, and of course the show went on all the way through to 1985. So, do we have any final thoughts? 
on Odd Man Out. This this is actually the first of twelve episodes of the Sitcom Club in which we'll be discussing Odd Man Out. I'm not entirely sure what we'll be discussing in the in the latter eleven episodes. Any 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 final thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I I would say about Odd Man Out that obviously, like we said earlier, that everything's there, but it doesn't really fit. It could have been a good sitcom. It could have been good for ITV. Now the point which I make here. That big names go across from BBC to ITV and they don't quite make it. Now, another example, of course, is Michael Crawford. Now, we all know him from Some Mothers Do Have Him as Frank Spencer. Now, the next project after that was for Thames TV was Chalk and Cheese, where he played a totally different character. Now, whether people had seen recently that uh, BBC Two in the UK had shown the many faces of um, Michael Crawford, and it mentioned it in there, but it's also an example that the big star, you know, they switch one channel to the other, and the move does not quite work. They like to stay in their own sort of basis. That's, that's that's really why John Inman, you know, at BBC in Are You Being Served, everyone knows what it is. They don't like, the public don't like change. Yeah, sitcoms. do you think that's so much a problem of moving channels or just changing shows? There, there must be yeah, cases yeah, of somebody being a massive success in a show, yeah, doing another yeah. show on the same channel and bombing. Yes. Anocho, did you have any final... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing you said but no, I stand by it, it's weak It's careless So we come full circle in an hour and a half We have So if anyone's listening now You could just click from the start Hear Ocho saying it's weak And an hour and a half later He said it's weak yeah. <laughs> Examining it has not changed my mind at all <laughs> I would I would be interested to know if there's any show that we ever cover on on the sitcom club where we've actually changed someone's opinion of it entirely in the space of an hour. Let's see if that occurs. But uh, yeah, um, further viewing we'll throw in. I'm pleased to say that there are complete episodes of the Australian "Are You Being Served" on YouTube. The theme uh, tune which... of which was the title track yes. of one of John Inman's three albums. I was stunned when you told me earlier. Well, I thought there was just one. I didn't realise it was free. That's amazing. There is a, a trivia quiz to which I do not know the answer. So when I say trivia quiz, I mean I'm asking the question. Can somebody give me the answer to it? Um, are there any other examples of, not just sitcoms, of any television show which has a theme which is sung by the principal actor but it wasn't recorded for that show? In other words, the theme music to the Australian Are You Being Served? was recorded by John Inman for his own album three years earlier and then is appropriated for this show. But you do see a lot of that with um, entertainment stars who go across to Australia and do Australian versions of their own Oh, show, thank God they like didn't the do it with porridge. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you, never, you never thought that they might have not well, at least tried it, if you get what I mean. That would have been fantastic. You, see, you you open an episode with Fletch sitting on his bunk and just pulls out and he goes, I, th- I didn't think they did transportation anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just reminded me, 
Boggs when you talked about British performers going over and doing shows in, in Australia. Amongst other people, such as the two Ronnies and, and, and what have you, Dick Emery did uh, a sketch series in Australia. And on one occasion when John Inman was performing Down Under, he encountered a group of um, gay liberation protesters appearing outside where he was working. And John Inman approached them and, and, and said, why are you targeting me uh, when, for example, say Dick Emery, he gave the example of Dick Emery, when he's playing honky-tonk character, is much more overtly effeminate than I am. And the reply that he got was, well, you're here and Dick Emery's not. That's a hell of a response and 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 quite interesting logic. <laughs> you, you can so you can apply that to any situation. If you go out and and protest to anyone, <laughs> then just knock yourself out. Um, so yeah. So to 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 wrap up then. Um, any other sitcoms on the agenda? What what's coming up for discussion? Boggs, you and I have got to discuss Cowboys with Roy Kinnear. Ah uh, yes, yes, Cowboys. Roy Kinnear, Colin Wellen, David Kelly, and I've the got o- the other bloke. The other fellow whose name we can't remember. Yeah, yes. yeah. And Ocho, we have had on the slate for, uh, what, uh, now, I think it's coming up to about three years now, Ever Decreasing Circle, which I still have to watch all of, and it's my fault because I haven't seen them Well, yet. we're going to do the first two series, I believe. That's fine. We know there's one certain fan out there from New Zealand who's going to be very excited about uh, seeing Peter Egan in his prime. Oh, so yeah, so uh, yeah, we're, we're going to do Big Breadwinner Hog. I heard Peter Egan and his, and I was wondering what was coming next. But <laughs> um, we still haven't had any uh, answers to our query from a few weeks back, which was. How the hell were there nine episodes of Richard O'Sullivan's Trouble in Mind? Nine? Yes, there are nine. Is it, nine? Is it only, I mean, I'm sitting here waiting for you to send me the other three. There are another six. <laughs> Do you seriously think I'm going to waste, oh, I'm going to waste my, my, my hard-earned ratio and, and, and people uh, in the know will know what ratio means? Um, Do you think I'm going to waste my hard-earned ratio <laughs> Trouble in mind, but even the ITV network themselves didn't put the bloody thing out in one go. I thought you'd grab them all already. Oh no, Sorry. no, I, I was, I was trying, but uh, there Nine. just weren't enough people online who had copies of it. Bizarrely enough, uh, but no, I'll, 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 I'll get them. We need to review Trouble in Mind uh, at a later date. Uh, I, I, I can't wait. Um, I'm up for talking about the many wives of Patrick. I'm enjoying. I'm really, yeah, I'm point. really enjoying that show, Patrick Cargo, and I'm also, I'm currently watching Fallow Dear Fallow in Australia. Uh, despite never having seen it. Well, actually, I'll tell you what, we'll combine maybe The Many Wives of Patrick with Father Dear Father the movie because I've never seen an episode of Father Dear Father. I've heard one of the South African radio equivalents, but I don't think that really counts. So I thought it might be interesting to come to the movie with no real idea of what I'm going to get because I think these things were always made with one eye on the possibility that not necessarily an export market, but certainly for people who hadn't watched the TV series, I think that's why Dad's Army had to be a reboot. It's going to be a Patrick Cargill slam, then, basically. Yeah, I think we'll just we'll talk about yeah. his timing because that, well, without wanting to jump the gun, I think Many Wives of Patrick is being carried by the performance. But yeah, I find him a very endearing 
uh, performer, and I'm quite happy just to watch whatever the the, the plot or uh, whatever may be going on. Uh, yeah, I just I just find him a, a very enjoyable performer. So. And also, still to come, Mooncat and I will be discussing something where we have to begin by saying, "No, really, it's a sitcom." Honestly, we're going to tackle something that we have to start by explaining why it's a sitcom, because I'm pretty sure that every place that sells it on DVD has it under drama, and they're wrong. It's a sitcom. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for your time today. And thank you to DCT for joining us earlier on. And yes, we will be back very, very soon with the next instalment of the Sitcom Club. Thank you very much indeed for listening today. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, which go all the way back to April, then you can find them all at sitcomclub.com and you can also find contact information for ourselves via Facebook and Twitter on there. Any particular series, any particular shows, or any particular actors that you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, just get in touch with us via the usual methods. And so, yes, from Bogginstrovia, Okay, don't forget that you, if there is anything more, you can uh, Twitter, of course, my own Twitter account at Bogginstrovia if there's anything uh, sort of sitcom related and we can sort of link it in with the club itself. Indeed. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we shall be back again very, very soon at the Sitcom Club. <laughs>